This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. Broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on uh, Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio of UK. I'm Amanda Machaga, driving the show with Onel Nzinzi, Wisani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest, a new concerns over attacks on journalists in Lesotho, South African anti-apartheid stalwart honored with a, a commemorative coin in economics. South Africa's scandal plagued a power supplier to appoint a new board and begin the search for a new chief executive at, at a special meeting in November. And in sports, Bafana Bafana's Dinantovu relishing a Burkina Faso clash. But first, the news with Onele. Thank you, Amanda. A feud has erupted between Zimbabwe's two vice presidents, with one accusing the other of undermining the authority of President Robert Mugabe. Pelegezela Mpoko said Emerson Nangagwa was trying to destabilize the country by claiming he had been poisoned after eating ice cream at a political rally held by President Mugabe, Shanghai Nyoka reports. It's an extraordinary criticism of one vice president by another. In a lengthy press statement, Pelekeze Lampoko accused his counterpart of lying about being poisoned in August. Mr. Mnangagwa is a front-runner to succeed President Mugabe. He fell ill at a political rally led by Mugabe and had to be airlifted to South Africa. Over the weekend, he spoke for the first time and suggested that someone had tried to poison his food. His supporters believe it was by a rival group within ZANU-PF. The chairperson of the African Union Commission for Human Rights and People's Rights, Pensi Takula, has called on the Democratic Republic of Congo's parliament to equip the country with an access to information. The Access to Information Bill of Law has already been passed by the country's Senate and is now before National Assembly. Ms. Takula, who is on a visit in Kinshasa, has requested the National Assembly Speaker commitment for the bill to be passed. We had discussions with the President of the National Assembly to just get his commitment that the bill will be passed very soon so that this country can have an access to information law. As you know, the bill was tabled before Senate in October 2015 and uh, it is important for the Democratic Republic of Congo to adopt an access to information law because access to information is a very important right. It is central to the enjoyment of other rights. Without access to information, the public cannot participate in the governance of its country. Kenya's opposition leader Raila Odinga and Deputy President William Ruto have called for protests on Friday after talks with the Electoral Commission deadlocked. They say changes that they insist on to ensure a free and fair fresh presidential election this month were not agreed to during the high-level meeting. Last month, Kenya's Supreme Court announced the presidential poll citing irregularities. Spokesperson for the Opposition National Super Alliance, James Oringo. We want to point out that our demonstrations will continue on Friday. 
as arranged all over the country, and that will be in accordance with the Constitution again, the right to associate and the right to assemble, the right to picket, and the right to hold peaceful demonstration in accordance with the law. Attacks by militant Islamists against United Nations peacekeepers, Malayan troops and French forces in Mali are reported to have been on an increase over the past four months. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres reported an increase of more than 100% in attacks since June. These figures represent an increase of 102.7% for all attacks compared to the previous four months. The Security Council is due to discuss the crisis in Mali on Thursday. The British Prime Minister Theresa May has struggled to deliver her main speech at the governing Conservative Party conference after being interrupted by a protester. May initially joked after a man handed her what appeared to be a document employees are given when they are fired. May subsequently stopped repeatedly clearing her throat as she spoke of Britain's future after leaving the European Union. Whatever the outcome of our negotiations... Britain's long-term future is bright. For as we look to that future, we do so with the fundamentals of our country strong. (coughs) Our economy is back on track. The deficit is back to pre-crisis levels. Sounds as if my voice isn't on track. (coughs) Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Thank you, Nelly. Lesotho's media freedom is once again in the spotlight following news yesterday that a South African Broadcasting Corporation correspondent, Ntakwana Ngatane, had to flee the country following numerous threats on her life. This is the latest in a string of incidences of violence and intimidation against journalists in the landlocked country. Earlier this year, two Lesotho radio stations were cut off air, allegedly on instructions from the Minister of Communications. The stations were later reopened after obtaining a court order. In July 2016, another journalist, Ekisto Mklobudi, fled Lesotho after being arbitrarily arrested and interrogated in relation to an article she published in the Lesotho Times and after her editor was shot and seriously injured. Ntakwana Ngatane was in studio earlier and had this to say. I can only assume at this point in time because um, in the past um, I have indicated that political party supporters... Mm. Um, it's not the government, it's not the leadership, and the leadership will come out um, with um, flimsy statements to say, no, we support the press. But in fact, they don't condemn um, attacks on journalists. So in my case, over the years, I have had uh, a lot of attacks from both sides of the political divide, from both current and past governments and supporters, from both current and past um, opposition and government uh, uh, political party supporters. Mm. Uh, but the recent one was sparked um, by reports Uh, or rather an analysis that I did on the death of the estranged wife of Prime Minister Tom Tabani Mm. that occurred between the elections and his inauguration, and that is in June. But um, 
following that, uh, but previously to that, I had also had threats from members of the Lesotho Congress for Democracy, whose leader and who has now, whose leader has now fled, and former Deputy Prime Minister Motejwa Meeting had made a very controversial statement, saying that the army had helped them or uh, put their necks on the block for them to be in government. Mm. And when we demanded an explanation, there was none. But uh, when we made it headline news, the supporters then came out again, backlashing us as journalists to say that we are making. Uh, news of it because we hate their party. Mm. Now, all I'm saying is that um, journalists in Lesotho are under threat on the streets, not from the administration, Mm. not from official channels, from the streets, from hooligans who take advantage and uh, who listen to leaders who sometimes say one word against a journalist and will go out. And and so you don't know uh, what will happen to you. One day I was walking out of court um, in a case that was unrelated to anything really. And there was a mob of uh, people that I believe at the time um, were sympathetic or at least supporting the Obasoto Convention. Mm. And they closed in on me and almost beat me up. Now, when I get phone calls from people who say, well, we know where you live, mm. I have to flee for my life. So you, you'd say it's political uh, party leaders who are inciting their followers to then threaten journalists? Well, they are not coming out to condemn it. So if you are silent when something like that is happening, I can only say that you're supporting it. And you've been accused of being biased uh, towards certain political parties. How do you respond to this? Um, now ABC supporters say that I am biased towards their party. Mm. But guess what? Mm. There are people now on the same string of social media that ABC supporters are saying are biased, who are saying, you know what, this is the same girl or woman who was used by ABC to feather their propaganda. So who am I supporting exactly? Mm. Who am I biased towards? Yeah. What do you think the role of the government should be in ensuring that uh, journalists are protected and are safe in the country? Well, I think the government, as I say, must come out and clearly mm. condemn Um, whether it is on social media or in public spaces, when they know that journalists have been threatened, they should come out clearly and Mm. state that they will not tolerate such acts. And would you say your case is a general reflection of the space which journalists in the country operate in? I I would say it is. As I say, only two months back, um, there was a media briefing that was called by the Lesotho Congress for Democracy. I was out of the country at the time. But I understand that supporters there intimidated and harassed some journalists that they said were against them. They did not want them in that media briefing. And um, the leaders in that that movement, in that party, came out to say that that was not reflecting um, their party. But a spokesperson of that party then came out and made another statement to say, why is the Journalists Union of Lesotho complaining now when uh, journalists have been harassed in so many press conferences before? So they are aware that it's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and so when one happens, they believe that another one is justified. It is not. That was the South African Broadcasting Corporation's correspondent Ntakwane Ngatane talking to us earlier in studio. A Lesotho-based journalist, Balo Muthutane, also weighed in on the matter, saying government needs to take a clearer and tougher stance on media freedom in the country, saying at the heart of this is politicians who come down very hard on dissent and criticism. Politicians in our country, some of them um, don't want to be asked um, a tough questions, and they really want to respond to those. And the most uh, unfortunate thing uh, is of the fact that uh, when you ask relevant questions or tough questions to them, uh, because remember that we actually work for 
our nation and we account to the nation. We account to our listeners, we account to our viewers. And for that matter, uh, our government has to respond to almost everything uh, that comes before them. But I think uh, if there is a question, if there are questions uh, that we raise, uh, all we need is answers and nothing more, nothing less. So we also have uh, the same thing um, where the former Prime Minister, Motega uh, Mekin, was actually called by the DPO, uh, that is the Directing of Corruption and Economic Offenses. Um, where, of course, I was also corrected by uh, his party followers, that is LTV uh, uh, party followers, and including the uh, deputy leader of the LTV, of course, who was part of those who were actually threatening me too. And also another colleague of mine uh, from uh, another meeting was also threatened in the same thing uh, by LTV members. Again, uh, the same thing also happened at the LTV offices where were also threatened by the same party followers uh, of the LTD. So I think um, um, uh, uh, that says, um, it becomes a threat to um, our media freedom. It becomes a threat uh, to our press freedoms. No other government official has uh, the right to threaten any government. So they feel that uh, what has been written or that or what has been reported to the nation is not true. They have to come on board and then give us the right facts. That was the voice of Paolo Moshitsane, a journalist and head of news at People's Choice Radio in Lesotho. The third annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum conference takes place in Cape Town, South Africa. The two-day event from the 5th to the 6th of October promises to ignite fundamental changes in Africa's socio-economic landscape. Channel Africa will be there to bring you the happenings live. Join us as we and the Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum push forward the economic empowerment of women who have historically been sidelined and disregarded in predominantly patriarchal and tribal societies. Listen to Channel Africa on the 5th and the 6th of October. Channel Africa, the African Perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English. Giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The new coins to commemorate 100 years since the birth of South African liberation stalwart Oliver Tambo have been launched in Johannesburg. The event to introduce the new coins to members of public was hosted earlier by the South African Mint and the South African Reserve Bank. Tambo, along with Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu, were the founding members of the ANC Youth League in 1943, becoming its first national secretary and a member of the national executive in 1948. Dumise Lo, Managing Director of South African Mint, has more on the 
significance of the newly launched coins? We've got a, you know, the, the main coin that we're making is a five-round coin, which uh, is actually depicting the order of uh, the friends of Oar Tambo. And as you would know, um, the order of uh, friendship of Oar Tambo is given out to friends of, uh, of the South African nation and friends of the South African government. And this is what you will see on uh, the five-round coin. It's very significant because uh, this is the way in which um, the order is the manner in which our government has chosen to preserve our Tambo's legacy. And so on this coin, we're honoring that particular legacy that the government has recognized. We've also issued a uh, 50 rand base metal coin that is uh, collectible and sure. is made in uh, limited quantities of 50,000. And this is a coin that is very affordable for members of the public in South Africa. Coins have typically um, you know, been made in silver and in gold, and that has made them quite a lot uh, less accessible and uh, not affordable enough. So with a base metal, 50 rand, um, which will probably be sold at a price of around 100 rand, it's the first for South Africa that we are able to issue coins that an ordinary member of the public can actually purchase a commemorative, uh, a commemorative coin. Very, very important that we do this in the year uh, that the first issue of such a coin uh, commemorate Oar Tambo, who, as you have already said, an icon of our democracy, a great uh, struggle stalwart, and uh, somebody that uh, whose values we continue to to espouse uh, in South Africa, values such as integrity and non-racialism and so on. Um, and then we also have a silver coin that is uh, in limited quantities of uh, 10,000, slightly more expensive but still very, fairly accessible because it's silver. Again, all these coins would have the face of the Oatambo at various stages of his life. Sure. It's also a gold coin for that uh, purpose. Now, when are these coins going to be available to the public circulation-wise, uh, Mr. Tesla? The uh, five-round coin will start going into circulation almost immediately. Uh, will be issued through um, normal channels. So when you go to the shop, you should expect that you should now be uh, starting to get um, an OR Tambo 5 rand in the form of change. The uh, collectible coins, the basement one that I said is a 50 rand, and the silver and the gold will be available from the 27th of October. Now, what are the plans uh, for this year on the part of SA Mint, uh, Mr. Tselko? Uh, can we expect more commemorative coin series to be launched? The coins of uh, or Tambo are part of uh, what we call South African celebration. And for this year, our theme is the 100 years of uh, Or Tambo. Sure. That's the main theme for our South African celebrations for this year. That's to meet Law, Managing Director of South African Mint, talking to our reporter, Kumbero Munzerede. 24 days to go to the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo. Hashtag the year of Oliver Tambo. Oliver Tambo's politics and leadership style were molded by his traditional rural roots and expertise acquired through education, both enabling him to reach and empower a broad mass of people nationally and internationally.
It's 19 minutes after 5 p.m. Central African time. You listen to Africa Digest with me, Amanda Machaga. Zimbabwe's president and government have brushed off concerns about a new financial crisis in the country, blaming shadowy forces on the Internet and social media for fueling unnecessary panic. Zimbabwe has been without its own national currency for nearly a decade after it was devastated by hyperinflation. President Robert Mugabe has been visiting neighboring South Africa where the BBC's Andrew Hunt went to see him. I'm watching President Mugabe shuffling slowly past me. The camera's catching every step. He's 93 years old now, and you can see it requires all his concentration to walk towards his chair and slump down. His bodyguards have just made it very clear to me that I should not call out or distract him. May I begin... Between long pauses, Mr Mugabe explains to his counterparts here in South Africa that he's come to discuss a favourite topic, radical economic reform. One people, one revolution, one struggle, one future. But for all the applause here, back home, an old enemy is threatening to resurface. Remember hyperinflation? Those grim times a decade ago when the Zimbabwean economy and its currency, the Zim dollar, fell down the proverbial rabbit hole. To give you a sense of this country's spiralling economic catastrophe, I come to a supermarket on This the was edge. me shopping in the capital, Harare, in 2008. Well, I've just spent nearly a trillion dollars and I've got three tins of baked beans and some tomatoes to show for it. Soon after that, Zimbabwe was forced to abandon its worthless currency and use the American dollar instead, and it's worked, after a fashion, for years. Except that now the country isn't earning enough US dollars abroad to share round at home. And this is the result, customers queuing by number overnight outside banks, nervously hoping to withdraw their wages. But there's a new complication. The authorities have started paying people in bond notes, essentially a new local currency. And everyone in Zimbabwe remembers what happened last time. The bond note started losing value. You go on the street to the money changers, they tell you of a different rate. At the bank, you don't get the money that you want. So that fueled the fear. It's the fear that I have as an ordinary Zimbabwean. I think the people of Zimbabwe are in some sort of a panic mode whereby they are insecure of, the, of their future, considering the current political dispensation that is taking place. Government officials like the Minister for Industry and Commerce, Michael Beamer, say panic is unnecessary and is being fuelled by traitors spreading rumours on the internet. I don't think we would call it a crisis as such. Uh, what has happened, and which is very unfortunate, is that um, there's been an abuse of the social media. So I think it's just a passing phase and, and things are getting to normal. Perhaps, but the problems go far deeper. Despite a good harvest, Zimbabwe's economy is in desperate shape. Trade unions put the unemployment rate at 90% and say businesses are folding fast. Listen, it is not just a, a problem that there is no enough money in circulation. The root cause is that there is no production happening in the country. 
Joint Mabengi is a political economist working for the Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition. So when people are looking at resolving this uh, economic situation, they are looking at overhauling the political system, starting with President Mugabe himself, because he is the one that is presiding over the mess that we are seeing. In fact, the collapse has happened under his watch, and we all know that this is also because of just sheer misgovernance. He must step aside and, uh, and allow probably a younger person or somebody with better ideas to take charge of the country and move the country forward. And discovering where they are. But back in South Africa, President Mugabe seems to have found a new lease of energy, joking as he introduces his cabinet ministers and making it very clear that at 93, the continent's oldest leader is staying put. <laughs> yeah, he is uh, oh, featured, very hard worker. And sometimes the fruits are not. That report by the BBC's Andrew Harding. Cameroon's government says it is trying to reach hundreds of thousands of people who tested HIV positive during screening tests but have not shown up for follow-up care. Health authorities believe stigma, lack of knowledge and concerns about the cost of treatment are keeping people away. Monkey Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Teams from Cameroon's National Committee for the Fight Against AIDS are at Government High School Resource, a neighborhood in Cameroon's capital. They are encouraging students who have done their HIV screening to make sure they come for follow-up care. The team, led by Alvin Gunner, also went with a loudspeaker to the University of Yaoundé one this week. <laughs> She says people should stop dying of AIDS because treatment is free. She says there should be no fear or panic if someone's result is positive since they are entitled to free treatment. Dr. Julian Guy-Bomba, who is part of the team, says six out of ten students who do the HIV screening do not return for follow-up. Le constat que nous faisons par rapport aux gens qui se font dépister est très triste parce que he says the sad reality is that they do not know what becomes of people who are increasingly refusing to come back for their results after voluntarily carrying out HIV screening. He says some social and cultural practices and beliefs make some people to behave as if they were not HIV positive when they know that they actually are carriers of the virus. Channel Africa succeeded to interview Justin Okowe, a 22-year-old HIV-positive student who says he has not cared to go for treatment. Je suis très inquiet. He says he has learned that antiretroviral drugs are hardly available and whenever they are found in Cameroon hospitals, they are very expensive.
Cameroon's National Committee for the Fight Against AIDS reports that hundreds of thousands of people are not showing up for follow-up care after they are diagnosed positive. Among the majority who do not return for the results of follow-up are pregnant women who are often the first family members to be tested for HIV when they go for prenatal consultations. The committee says they may be blamed and psychologically tortured for bringing the virus into their families and others fear experiences of stigma and discrimination from health workers, male partners, family and community members. Taking antiretroviral treatment could also lead to unintended disclosure and social isolation. The UN Children's Fund also estimates that in northern Cameroon, 40% of HIV-positive children are not returning for treatment. Jean-Stéphane Biacha, Executive Secretary of the NGO African Synergies Against AIDS and Sufferings, says they have joined the government of Cameroon in search of hundreds of thousands of people who are refusing to come for follow-up care. It's a long process actually, you know, we need to be very patient, we need more efforts, talk to people, get people to understand that you don't need to hide yourself, you know, when you're infected, because you can be put under treatment, free treatment. United Nations AIDS UN AIDS 2016 statistics indicate that four out of every 100 Cameroonians live with HIV against 2.3% in West and Central Africa. In 2013, the Global Fund approved a $20 million grant for HIV-AIDS treatment in Cameroon, while the government doubled its funding for antiretroviral medicines from $11 million to about $20 million in 2014. 145,000 people have been receiving antiretroviral treatment and the government estimates that another 180,000 has to wait for the government to find funds for their treatment. They will be waiting alongside hundreds of thousands of others who are still to show up for follow-up care. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Our news headlines up next with Onelinzinzi. A few days erupted between Zimbabwe's two vice presidents who are accusing the other of undermining the authority of President Robert Mugabe. The chairperson of the African Union Commission for Human Rights and People's Rights, Pense Tlakula, calls on the DRC's parliament to equip the country with an access to information law and Cameroon's government trying to reach hundreds of thousands of people who tested HIV positive during screening tests but have not shown up for follow-up care. Channel African News, I am Onelinsinsi. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. 
Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 17.32 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest. Kenyan environmentalists have teamed up to make a unique Swahili boat from waste plastic. The project aims to raise awareness on the impact of plastics on marine ecosystems. Preparations for what is called the flip-floppy expedition are on at a Lamu beach where waste plastic and discarded flip-flops collected from Kenyan beaches and towns are being used to build a 60-foot boat that is destined to sell to Cape Town in South Africa. Our correspondent, Diana Wanyonye, reports. Kenya is constructing the world's first though, made entirely from waste plastic, including flip-flops, colorful sandals, also popularly known as slippers, collected on the Kenyan coastline in a bid to curb the plastic menace. The flip-flop is common in Kenya, both as an indoor and outdoor shoe, as it is cheap, readily available and easy to replace. Once worn out, the flip-flop is often left wandering along the beaches as it is easily swept away by waves from the shorelines as guests relax. Some 30 tons of plastic will have been collected and shredded for recycling between January this year when the building of the door started and next year January when the vessel is scheduled to set off on the expedition. More than 200,000 flip-flops will be used, hence the name flip-floppy. While the construction of the boat is underway in Lamu, historically, the leader in the door manufacturing beach cleanups organized with schools, tourism businesses, conservation organizations and community groups are collecting flip-flops all along the Kenyan coast with the main collecting points Mombasa, Malindi, Lamu and Watamu. I visited one of the cleanup operations on Watamu Beach. For the community living near Watamu Beach, cleanup of the beach is actually routine exercise every second week. People are carrying white sacks either by hand or their back, picking up debris scattered on the white sandy beach. Captain John, a resident of Watamu, has participated in beach cleanups for more than three years. He elaborates why he is passionate about this exercise. We are cleaning the beach. We care about our environment. We do conserve by taking plastic and those are items, those cannot get rotten. Those are the dangerous ones to the fishes and the marine creatures as well. Every time we see the plastics on the beach, we take them and put them in the litter bin. We have to burn also the plastic bottles as well because it spoils the environment. While plastic is incredibly durable, versatile and valuable, it is causing damage to the environment, including the marine environment. There have been various cases of sea turtles, dolphin, birds and even fish killed annually from ingesting plastic. Justin Kitsau, chairman of the Watamu Marine Association, says marine life mistakenly eat plastic, confusing it with food. Here on Watamu Beach, 
tons of waste plastics have been collected only today. The plastic are not only from Kenya. They are coming from West Indian countries. Some come as far as from India. You know, we are in India and Malaysia. So as conservationists, we are not just collecting. We have our all the plastic, all the other solid waste. We are normally taking them to recycling. We do sort and regeneration is one company in Malindi. They do melt and they mold and they make different uh, recycled products. Dr. Gamoile Cham, a researcher at the Kenya Wildlife Service, describes some of the threats to the marine ecosystem and the mitigation plants in place. The rise of the sea surface temperature that causes what you call the bleaching of the corals. The diseases like such could include the population explodes of the sea oceans, man-induced challenges include overfishing, the wrong use of the fishing gears or illegal gears, and poaching. Poaching here will mean perhaps fishing in ideally protected area. We build the capacity of uh, first and foremost from our internal staff and everybody else to be able to identify the threats of climate change and able to undertake some of the environmentally friendly practices to enforce against poaching, against the use of illegal or destructive fishing gears. Plastic collected are taken to a recycling center two kilometers from Watamu Beach. The plastics are turned into useful products which are sold overseas and for now much of the recycled products are added to the building of the fleet floppy though. Back to Justin Kitsau, chairman of Watamu Marine Association, who is urging government to help them in creating awareness to Kenyans on the importance of keeping all the coastal beaches plastic-free. My government, through NEMA, because we have banned, we need to do more awareness to our communities. We need to engage stakeholders and to involve them in every, every, every bit of this implementation. That was the chairman of Watamu Marine Association on the Kenya's north coast, Justin Kitsau. Departing in January next year from Lamu, the flip-floppy will sail south along the coasts of Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique and onwards into South Africa with an anticipated arrival date in Cape Town in March 2018, a journey of some 5,250 kilometers. While the building of the door is highlighting the importance of recycling, the project also seeks to champion the culturally significant but declining craft of traditional Swahili door building. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Deano Anyonyi in Mombasa. An ambitious new strategy to reduce deaths from cholera by 90% by 2030 has been launched at a meeting in France. The plan, dubbed the Ending Cholera, a global roadmap to 2030, aims to align resources, share best practice and strengthen partnerships between donors, international agencies and countries affected by the waterborne disease. Cholera kills an estimated 95,000 people and affects close to 3 million more every year. More from the World Health Organization's Tariq Jasarovic. Well, this is a very ambitious new strategy aiming to reduce deaths from cholera by 90% by 2030. So this is an effort of more than 40 organizations that are meeting to try really to make this renewed push to try to put everything in place so this disease that should not be among us in 21st century can be really tackled with much more success than it was the case before. Now, looking at the current state of affairs, where about 95,000 people die from cholera annually, 
Is it realistic to aim to reduce cholera deaths by 90% by the year 2030? We have to do everything that we can to try. If you really think about it, having good water and sanitation infrastructure made a big part of the world cholera-free. And where we see now cholera is the places of poverty, it is places that lack infrastructure, it's places that are stricken by the conflict. So cholera is hitting communities that are already facing the burden of poverty. We really need to try to make sure that, uh, that there is a concerted effort in terms of financing, in terms of technical expertise, to try really to get this burden as low as possible. And what does it mean for the World Health Organization to be part of this new joint initiative to stop deaths from cholera? Well, for the World Health Organization, obviously, it's very important that we are leading this effort at the Global Task Force on Cholera Control that is housed here at the WHO. We are responding to a number of outbreaks every year. And while we are spending lots of effort and finances to try to provide the treatment centers, to provide cholera vaccines, to organize vaccination campaigns, it would be probably more used for us to spend efforts and money as well in trying to prevent cholera to happen in the first place because this is completely preventable disease. It is happening always in a very predictable hotspots that we know and we really have to focus on these areas so we have less than people infected and less than effort will be needed to respond to actual outbreak. Are there any challenges that you're perhaps anticipating that could hinder the success of this plan, especially given that cholera usually impacts communities already burdened by things such as conflict, you know, lack of infrastructure, poor health systems and malnutrition? Exactly. You're absolutely right. There are lots of challenges on the way to this. And especially if we see, for example, where we have cholera outbreaks now, we have a cholera in Somalia, we have a cholera in Yemen, in Democratic Republic of Congo, in northern eastern Nigeria. But even in those places, we were able to put in place a necessary response action. In Yemen, for example, despite the big number of people who were infected, the fatality ratio, in fact, is very low because people were able to attend to treatment centers. We have just concluded another vaccination campaign in northern eastern Nigeria. But again, if we manage really, together with countries, to invest more in water and sanitation, access to clean water, we would be sure then then less people will be infected. Again, challenges are big, but there is really concerted effort by the countries themselves and by external partners. We believe uh, the progress is possible. How will this plan be funded, Tariq? How much will be required? Is it known at this stage? Well, we don't really... Uh, have the exact amount of, of money that will take. We want really that money comes from different sides. First, domestic funding is really important. So countries themselves invest more in infrastructure, especially in water and sanitation, so people can have access to clean water. But number of financing partners and donors are with us at this meeting, and we hope that there will be a, some coordinated donor action as well to try to push this roadmap forward. And just before I let you go, have you identified some of the countries that will be targeted first, the so-called cholera hotspots? Well, this is being discussed. We know what these countries are. If you look back a couple of years back on where we had a cholera outbreak. It's really the same countries and mostly in Africa. So we will work primarily with those countries to try to see, to identify exactly where the gaps are and how those hotspots can be tackled in the most efficient way.
That's Tariq Jasaravich of the World Health Organization speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjorere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. It's approaching 17.45 Central African time. We have our economics news up next with Wisani Matebula. Good evening. Thanks, Amanda. South Africa's Competition Commission has launched an investigation against cell phone giant Vodacom into what it terms abuse of dominance. The commission says Vodacom has secured an exclusive contract with National Treasury to be the sole provider of mobile telecommunication services to government. The commission says it has information showing that 20 government departments will be subjected to the new Vodacom contract. The commission spokesperson, C. Pongwema. We are worried that this contract may further entrench Vodacom's dominant position in the market, raise barriers to entry and expansion in the cell market, but also distort competition in the market, uh, result to a loss of market for our network uh, operators. If we are unable to find a settlement, then we'll be able to uh, go to the competition tribunal for the matter to be adjudicated. Meanwhile, South Africa's competition watchdog has dropped an investigation into Aspen Pharmacare and Equity Pharmaceutical, saying a case against them for overcharging for cancer medicines cannot be sustained. In June, the Competition Commission said it will investigate Aspen, U.S. company Pfizer, Swiss-based Rocher Holdings and its subsidiary Genentech and Equity, which is a division of Klinigen, South Africa, for suspected excessive pricing in the provision of specific cancer medicines in the country. The commission, which investigates their cases before bringing them to the competition tribunal for adjudication, will continue to investigate the complaints against Rocher, Genentech and Pfizer. Pfizer has denied any wrongdoing and Russia said in June that it will cooperate fully with the authorities. 
The South African Chamber of Mines says it has lost all confidence in the Minister of Minerals and Resources, Museben Zizwane. The Chamber briefed the media today and confirmed that the Chamber of Mines executives and office bearers have decided not to attend last night's Johannesburg Indaba Gala dinner, where Zwane was the guest speaker. The Chamber CEO, Roger Baxter. He became the minister, seemingly with the primary task of strong-arming a legitimate right holder of a major mining asset, conspiring with the then ESCOM leadership to apparently force the sale of a mine to a well-known family that has systematically uh, robbed South Africa of public funds. The story has been comprehensively documented by the public protector and the academic report and the SA Council of Churches reports that have come out. The minister has done nothing to explain his roles in these areas. And South Africa's Minister of Public Enterprises, Lynn Brown, says uh, the wasteful and fruitless expenditure of power utility ESCOM will be investigated by the Special Investigating Unit. The Auditor General says wasteful spending at ESCOM soared to 38 million US dollars in 2016-2017 from 7 million dollars in the previous financial year. ESCOM is at the heart of allegations of state capture involving illegal contracts and undue influence in awarding tenders to companies owned by the Gupta family. The charges have been denied. Brown was presenting an annual report to Parliament. It will go to the Ethics Committee and it will go to the Public Protector as well. But the fruitless, wasteful expenditure, all of those issues are part of what constitutes the SIU deep dive. The SIU, for me, will be able to do a deep dive and look into the issues of procurement, contract management, the issues that contributed to fruitless and wasteful and irregular expenditure, the trillions, the togetas, all of it. Ustez proposed the 2018 budget of uh, 12 billion US dollars, a more than 4% increase on 2017. The world's top cocoa growers predicting economic growth of 8.3%. Ivory Coast has emerged from a decade-long political crisis as one of the world's fastest-growing economies. However, a crash in world cocoa prices, coupled with repeated army mutinies and public sector strikes, has dented its image as a rising African star. The budget deficit is likely to balloon to 4.5% of the GDP this year. Financial indicators now, the dollar trading at 13.64, South African rents at 10.27, Botswana Pula at 9.67, Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.85 against the euro. Commodities gold is at $1,275, platinum at $912 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $55.65 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you, Sunny. Time now for our sports news with uh, Musibu Demakura.
Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with your latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, when Bafana Bafana head coach Stuart Baxter announced his first squad to play Nigeria in an Africa Cup of Nations qualifier back in June, he was asked about the omission of Dino Ndlovu at the time. Baxter responded that he wasn't sure about the standard of the Azerbaijan League, and this despite the Karabakh FC striker being a top goal scorer of the club last season. Fast track to today, Ndlovu is the only South African in the highly rated UEFA Champions League group stages and is back in the Bafana Bafana team. And he will be using the World Cup qualifier to prove his worth to the coach. For me, uh, I respect the coach's uh, statement when he raised that. Uh, I, think it's, I think the day he was uh, hired as an initial team coach, I respect his uh, his uh, decision to say what else statement what he said. But at the end of the day, you know, we play football. Whether I play in Azerbaijan, I play in Mozambique. At the end of the day, we play we we, we play soccer. We we chasing the wrong thing. You know, it's football. But uh, I think it's uh, playing playing for Champions League has helped me a lot because we. we we kind of had a, a decent conversation, me and him, on the on the, on the phone, and he really sh- told me and he really showed me that, you know, how do all I fit in the team? But basically, it's not about me only. You know, I think it's about the whole country who's gonna come here and support the team, and we're in a really really serious state in the in the in the, in the table, and we, we need to overturn that this coming weekend. With Tugela Randia out of the team and Bradley Hobler having failed to deliver in the two losses against Cape Verde last month, the expectation will be that Baxter will pin his hopes on Ndlovu. The 27-year-old believes that he can fit into Baxter's system and help Bafana Bafana restore their battered image. No, I think it, it won't be that much different because of, I, I, I haven't really, really touched on how each, each uh, formation we play. Because normally in our team we play 4-3-3 and I play as a long striker. But the, the, the previous games I watched of Bafana, uh, together was mainly playing alone. So it's, it's more similar. So I don't think I'll have so much problem in uh, dealing well with the other, uh, other players. On to Hockey News. Hockey South Africa have appointed Sheldon Rostron as the interim coach of the men's national hockey team ahead of the Africa Cup of Nations tournament set to take place in Egypt later this month. Rostron is also the main coach of the women's national side. He will be tasked with ensuring that the men's team defend their title successfully and ensure qualification to next year's World Cup tournament in India. Now, the women's side have already qualified for the World Cup in London, England after finishing in fifth position at the FIH Hockey World League semi-finals back in July. Despite the challenge of coaching two national sides, Rostron says he's up for the challenge. I think um, for me it's it's quite a big challenge. Um, also quite an exciting challenge, um, being part of both processes. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to take both the teams to uh, Africa and, and be able to compete um, at that event. Um, and yeah, quite quite excited to be honest. And finally, in tennis news, Maria Sharapova has been dumped out of the China Open in the third round on Wednesday by Simona Halep, going down 6-2, 6-2 to the Romanian world number two. The Russian now languishing at 104 in the world rankings is still searching for her first title since returning back in April after a 15-month suspension or, uh, for taking the banned substance melodonium, with world number one Gabin Muguruza exiting the first round um, with a virus. The 27-year-old Halib is now favourite to win in the Chinese capital. Well, those are sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African time. Let's do a quick recap of our top stories right here on Africa Digest. New concerns of our text on journalists in Lesotho, and South African anti-apartheid stalwart honoured with a commemorative coin. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaka, producer Leander Maome, technical producer Tumelo Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp us on plus two seven seven six three double zero three three two seven or tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is a song titled So Sick of Being Human by JR.
so sick of being Chip. I'm just so sick of being Mu randire moni wande ma